November 2013 in the Maidan, a plaza in central Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine. Three months of protests began when President Viktor Yanukovych scrapped a plan for economic cooperation with the EU in favour of closer ties with Russian President Vladimir Putin. President Vladimir Putin has issued warnings of colder relations with Ukraine should it turn westward. By the time the protests ended in February 2014, Yanukovych had fled the country. Soon after, a pro-EU government was elected in Ukraine. Claiming victory tonight, billionaire Petro Poroshenko said his first priority is to put an end to the war and chaos. Weeks later, Crimea, a coastal region of Ukraine with a strong Russian military presence, was annexed by Russia despite international outcry. Since the Russian intervention, we've been mobilizing the international community to condemn this violation of international law. Next, pro-Russian activists seized control of government buildings in the eastern Ukrainian region of Donbass. The government fought back and so began a violent conflict that has continued ever since in a cycle of fighting, negotiations and ceasefires. The front line in Donbass has not moved significantly for nearly seven years, but the situation remains unstable. Russia does not accept Ukraine's pro-Western geopolitical orientation and Ukraine does not accept the occupation of part of its territory by the Kremlin's forces. 14,000 people have already died in the Russia-Ukraine conflict since 2014. But now a massive build-up of military strength by Russia along its border has the world worried that the conflict is about to become much worse. I'm Sarah Hapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, is war coming to Ukraine? Daniel McLaughlin reports from the ground. So, Dan, just to start with, you've spent a lot of time in Ukraine over the years. What kind of relationship have you built up with that country? It's a place that I have spent a lot of time, certainly since 2013, through the Maidan Revolution, through the annexation of Crimea, through the war in Donbass. And then, you know, successive governments in Kiev trying to um, introduce sweeping reforms against corruption and fighting organized crime and things. So I've seen a lot happen here. It's a place that I do enjoy coming because it still feels like change is possible. I've just spent, for example, three months in Russia and there, you know, civil society is under huge pressure. Free media is under huge pressure. The main opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, is in jail. So it feels like change is very, very difficult and dangerous in Russia. Here it still feels like always oh, you come to Kiev, there are things happening, there are protests, there are activists out campaigning, there are petitions going around. It still feels very dynamic and it feels like a country with huge potential. And Dan, the other day you were reporting for us, the Irish Times, from a place called Kharkiv, which is one of the cities that was stormed by pro-Russian forces back in 2014, but that didn't fall to them. And it's very much under Ukrainian control. You said in your piece that, quote, there is no panic in Kharkiv, which is now in the eye of what Western leaders and intelligence report depict as a gathering storm. And one person there told you, Many people might already be at such a level of tension that it can't go any higher. What are people saying on the ground? Do they expect there to be a war? They think that something could certainly happen. They don't know what it might be. They don't know what is most likely. They know that Russian forces are now up in Belarus. They're obviously in Crimea. They're close to the eastern border of Ukraine as well. So they think the threat could come from any direction. It could also come... In more unexpected ways, it could come through cyber attacks. It could come with some kind of attack on the banking system and the economy. 
It could come through, you know, an intensification of propaganda. It could, could come through some provocation, as they say, in the separatist controlled areas in the East. So they're looking at all these different factors, all these different possibilities and wondering what it could be. They're also used to living with a certain level, as I mentioned there in the story, and as, as locals have told me, a certain level of Unpredictability. Can you tell us about some of the people in Kharkiv that you've been speaking to and, and what have they been saying? Yeah, I mean, I arrived on on a very interesting day. Saturday was Unity Day, the Unity Day national holiday. One of the central events was uh, a rally close to the, a statue of Taras Shevchenko. He's the kind of the national bard of Ukraine. People got together there. They were rallying for the defense of Ukraine and against Russian aggression, as they said. So I spoke to people in Kharkiv, including uh, Irina Panasenko. And she said to me, that Ukraine was absolutely ready to defend itself, that Kharkiv was a much more Ukrainian city than it was before. And in conclusion, she said to me that people now realize that history is written in blood. This was something that people in Kharkiv and all over Ukraine were now realizing, and that the country was ready to defend itself in any way it needed to in the weeks ahead. Yeah, we, we've come to expect anything from Russia. We live so close to Russia that we have to be on some level ready all the time for things to take a turn for the worse. But we also feel like certainly our state is stronger than it was. Our military is much, much stronger than it was, much more organized than it was eight years ago. And the general feeling, as I mentioned, in Kharkiv is much more pro-Ukrainian. A few people said to me, even those who are not really involved in politics, even those who would feel somewhat indifferent on the question of whether we're part of Russia, part of Ukraine and so on, they've seen what happened close by in Donetsk and Lugansk, and they do not want that kind of conflict, that kind of isolation, that kind of poverty uh, and devastation of the local economy to come to a city like Kharkiv, which is really bustling. It's full of students. There's a really vibrant, dynamic life in Kharkiv. Many people feel strongly pro-Ukrainian. That's what they want to defend. Other people just want to defend their normal life and peace and calm. But meanwhile, the Russian military has been massing troops and tanks on its side of the border with Ukraine at, at different locations. And some of them aren't that far from where you currently are right now. When did that build-up begin and what scale is it at now? Well, we've seen a couple of phases of build-up. We had a build-up initially back in last summer when Russia held uh, military drills quite close to Ukraine. And a lot of armour was positioned for those drills. A lot of armoured vehicles, artillery and so on were put in place quite close to Ukraine. And there was a certain level of alarm then in Ukraine and among Ukraine's Western allies. Now, Russia pulled back at that point, but it pulled back troops, but it left a lot of the military equipment in place. So already Kiev was saying, look, we have to watch this because it could mean that Russia could escalate things very quickly because a lot of the equipment it needs is already there quite close to our border. But a much bigger escalation has taken place over the last couple of months. Ukraine. The U.S. says Russia's military buildup near Ukraine is larger than that of 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. A Pentagon spokesman has called... Military experts say a lot of the elements that Russia would need for a major invasion in Ukraine are in place. But they also say that not all of them are in place. There was a, a very interesting article written by a Ukrainian military expert yesterday, which got a lot of attention. He said that he doesn't see the, the depth is there really for a major Russian invasion yet. Things like medical supplies and medical personnel, things like fuel lines going to the troops on the border. 
what Russia needs in terms of, of, of its equipment depends on what Russia intends to do. What kind, whether this is all just a, um, intimidation or whether some kind of operation is planned in the near future. But yes, it's clear that that Ukraine, even though its military has improved a lot in the last eight years, would definitely be overmatched. You know, if Russia was to use its fighter jets and its bombers, if Russia was to use long range missiles, there is almost nothing that Ukraine could do against that at the moment. But the basic question, I guess a lot of people are asking is, why is this happening? I mean, what does Vladimir Putin want with all this? Yeah, that is the key question. On the diplomatic front, Russia, out of the blue, really, handed a set of security demands to the West, to NATO and America. And the two key demands were that NATO says that Ukraine, Georgia and other countries in Eastern Europe will never join NATO. Russia says it wants a cast iron guarantee that this will never happen. The second thing is that Russia wants NATO to withdraw its forces from member states in Eastern Europe back to where NATO forces were all the way back in 1997. Now, these are the two key demands from Russia. Russia says this, everything else rests on these two demands. Now, these are things that Russia knows and has known for years are absolutely impossible for the West to give. America came straight out and said, we will discuss for example, missile deployments with you. We will discuss limiting the size of military exercises in Eastern Europe. But these two questions, slamming the door closed to NATO membership and pulling back NATO forces from member states are absolute non-starters. That's the term that the Americans used. So why is Russia demanding something that it knows the West cannot deliver? That makes Ukrainians very nervous because it, it looks to them like he's creating a pretext for some kind of major military assault on Ukraine. And Putin said that. He said he will use um, military technical means, is the way that he put it, if the West cannot deliver on these security demands from Russia. Could Putin simply be bluffing here? I think there is still a great deal of scepticism. I think, I mean, people are almost ruling out that he would go into direct conflict with NATO. That seems beyond the bounds of possibility, I think. So it's a question of what he intends to do in Ukraine. Again, if he goes for a some kind of invasion, if he heads towards Kiev, if he tries to take an area like Kharkiv, if he tries to take an area in southern Ukraine, maybe trying to link Russia with Crimea, he will face enormous resistance. And not just in the initial, initial assault, but also in trying to hold on to that territory. So people think that something that is perhaps much more likely, initially at least, is recognition of the, the independence of these so-called um, people's republics in eastern Ukraine in Donetsk and Lugansk, that might be at least a first stage. Putin might send in troops, call them peacekeepers, recognize the independence which they are looking for. The separatists there, controlled by Moscow, are looking for this recognition of, of independence. Um, and that would allow Russia at least to say, we've done something, we're protecting Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. There would be big parades in Donetsk and Lugansk, lots of coverage on Russian television, and it would look like a victory for Putin. It would allow him to somehow step back a little bit from those demands he's made, which can't be met by the West, um, but still say that he has, mo he has done something, he has faced down the West, and he has protected Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. That's one potential scenario which, which could play out. Do you have any idea why this is happening now? Uh, does the timing have any significance or perhaps events of the past year? How do they play into this? 
Yeah, I think that's a really crucial question. Why now? Because it is clear. I mean, it's, it was a surprise when Russia came out with these security demands now. And the military buildup has been so intense. Again, it, it's trying to get into the, the thinking of Putin and, and the close circle around him who make decisions. And they may look at the situation and think, okay, Ukraine is only getting stronger militarily. Ukraine's sense of its own kind of Ukrainianness, the unity of the country is only getting stronger. In lots of ways, culturally, economically, politically, diplomatically, it's only getting further away from Russia. And that is only going to continue and accelerate in the years ahead. So in that sense, Putin might think, if I want to keep hold of Ukraine, now is the time to do it. They may look at the West and see divisions. Angela Merkel's just stepped down. An inexperienced leader is now in Germany. They may not think President Biden is particularly convincing when he talks to his Western allies and when he talks to Russia about the American and the Western response to this. America would definitely like to concentrate on China if it could and put Russia on some kind of back burner. So again, Moscow may think, well, maybe we can persuade America to compromise on this. And it also looks around the European Union and sees divisions. You know, Germany very much wants to get the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline with Russia up and running. We're in the middle of winter. Gas stocks are extremely low in Europe. Russia is still the main gas and oil supplier to the European Union. So if there was to be a crisis, the middle of winter is also a time when Russia can exert le leverage through the energy market. So all these factors come into play. And Russia may look at this and think, considering all these factors, the risks of acting now are lower than just letting things de develop and play out over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Coming up, how much are Western nations aiding Ukraine and how is the situation viewed by Russian people? Russia will be held accountable if it invades and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do. Last week, US President Joe Biden seemed to indicate that a minor incursion by Russian forces into Ukraine would somehow be acceptable. Are you saying that a minor incursion by Russia into Ukrainian territory would not lead to the sanctions that you have threatened? Or are you effectively giving Putin permission to make a small incursion into the country? <laughs> Good question. Um, so it did sound like, didn't it? His Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, wrote back on that statement. We've been very clear uh, with Russia that uh, any Russian forces uh, going into Ukraine uh, constitute uh, an invasion that will be... Um Dan, how did Biden's comments go down in Ukraine? Did they feel like they were being hung out to dry at all? Yeah, it went down really badly. I mean, what, what, what Ukraine wants most of all is to hear the West speaking with one strong voice and delivering one strong, unequivocal message to Moscow. And when Biden, even though America's been extremely positive and supportive um, in practical ways and with diplomacy and rhetoric uh, towards Ukraine. When Biden steps out and says something like that, he's really exposing one of the key fears of, of Ukraine. If Russia somehow limits the next phase of its aggression against Ukraine, the West will just swallow it. For example, the, the scenario that I mentioned to you earlier, potentially Russia sending troops openly into the separatist controlled areas of Eastern Ukraine. The fear in Ukraine, one of the fears, is that the, uh, the collective West would look at that and kind of breathe a collective sigh of relief and think, oh, well, you know, 
God, at least Putin's not heading for Kiev, or he's not going to try and take Odessa or Kharkiv or go to new territory, do something in Western Ukraine. And that's also, I think, one of the calculations in Russia. You know, they did this, for example, back in Georgia in 2008, make really extreme threats. At that time, they threatened to go to the Georgian capital, Tbilisi. And when they held back and only stayed in two, again, separatist-controlled regions, the West, again, sort of was, was to some extent, relieved that at least we don't have to deal with an enormous crisis. And when Biden said that, it was certainly a cause for concern in Kyiv, and they were very glad to see Antony Blinken and other uh, U.S. representatives come out and say very quickly and unequivocally that any additional steps by Russia inside Ukraine would be considered an attack. Then on Monday, Joe Biden held a conference call with European leaders, which included UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but also French President Emmanuel Macron and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Afterwards, he said there was total unanimity in their opposition to Russia entering Ukraine. And as you mentioned, he's threatened sanctions. He's also put 8,500 US troops on standby to go into the area. Can you tell me a bit more about the feeling on the ground among Ukrainians. Do they think enough support is coming from the US, the EU and Britain at this point? Well, it certainly depends on which country you look at. You know, good news from the Ukrainian point of view in the recent days has been that the United States is preparing uh, troops and putting on standby, definitely not to come into Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't expect any US or other NATO troops to come and defend it on its own territory, but it certainly wants armed supplies. Uh, There was a big arms delivery over the weekend from the United States. I think two arms deliveries actually in recent days from the States. Britain said at the end of last week that it was sending 2,000 anti-tank rockets to Ukraine. The Baltic states have said that with US permission, they are sending US-made anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons to Ukraine. So there is military support coming in. And the Ukrainians are hugely grateful for that. I mean, there was just one line from uh, Lviv, a city in western Ukraine close to Poland yesterday, that um, coffee houses were offering free drinks to British citizens as a sign of gratitude for their delivery of these anti-tank weapons. So there are lots of little things like that going on on the ground. When they look to the European Union and other NATO members, they see different messages. Um, They're getting strong support from the Baltic states and Poland, as I mentioned, but they're very frustrated, for example, with Germany. Germany has helped a lot with um, technical assistance, with funding, with uh, advice and help with reforms. But when it comes to arms deliveries, Germany has absolutely ruled that out for now. And that is frustrating for Kyiv. It thinks that the best thing that, that Germany and all European allies could do now is to help in some way with preparing the country militarily, because they think that is the best way to deter Putin at the moment. I think on, in general, Ukraine has been heartened by the response of its Western partners um, with some uh, reservations about the German response. But generally, it is it is happy. And as I say, it's not expecting any foreign troops to come and fight on the ground for Ukraine. Ukraine says we're ready to do that. Dan, we heard at the start of the podcast about the recent history of Ukraine and Russia and the chain of events that began in the Maidan in 2013. But we probably need to go back just a little bit further to understand why Ukraine is so important to Russia. Could you briefly explain uh, their historical relationship? Well, they have a very, very close relationship going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Obviously, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. Before that, it was part of the Russian Empire. But if you look even further back... Kyiv, in fact, was the heart of the first 
Eastern Slavic state, a state called Kiev and Rus, a thousand years ago, more than a thousand years ago, was established. And that is what makes Kiev very, very special for Slavic people all, all over Eastern Europe, really. It is the kind of first original founding city of the Eastern Slav people. That is why it's very important for Russia. It's very important for, for, for Putin, personally, for the strong Russian nationalist element that is close to Putin, keeping hold of these traditional, as they see them, uh, lands that were, were unified at one point and that should be part of a kind of unified Slavic people. That also plays a, a, an important part in their thinking and their emotional connection to this conflict that's playing out now between Russia and Ukraine. And it's why they feel... Some of those people around Putin and those um, influences in Russian nationalist circles are really deeply, deeply offended, I think, personally, by the idea of Ukraine allying with the West, because it's seen as a kind of civilizational change in Ukraine. Um, and that is unacceptable for them. And those people are, to some extent, influential around Putin now. What about the Russian people themselves? As you've mentioned, you've spent a lot of time in Russia over the past three months. Do they support what he's doing right now with the Ukraine? Well, I didn't feel any, you know, any hostility towards Ukraine, let's say, when I was there. And I didn't feel that there was a great kind of nationalist fervor among the people. But the thing is, they don't decide anything in Russia at the moment. You know, when we think about how um, policies are made in democracies, those things don't apply. Those levers of influence on a leadership, on a government, on an elite don't apply in Russia. So we won't see huge protests on the street. And if there is, even if there is a, a grassroots feeling that Russians don't want to get into another war with Ukraine, that isn't transmitted through, for example, the state media. It isn't transmitted through political parties. It isn't transmitted through pressure building on a leader to change his policy. So when Russians turn on their TV, they, they see on state channels which dominate, they see pure pro-Putin propaganda, really demonizing Ukraine, demonizing the West, portraying Russia as the threatened party in all this. They claim Russia is being surrounded, that Ukrainian neo-Nazis and fascists are threatening Russian speakers on a daily basis in Ukraine, which is just not true, that the Ukrainian people are being dragged against their will to join the West in a kind of campaign against Russia. This is the message that is pumped out by the media to try and perhaps prepare the public for whatever comes next and to create a certain level of acquiescence, at least. But certainly, I have to say, when I was on the ground talking to people about, about Ukraine, about the time I've spent in Ukraine, about the story here, they would almost always say, this is politics. So, Dan, bringing this all back to the tensions that are building on uh, the border between Russia and Ukraine, how serious do you think this could become? Is an all-out war on the cards here? And do you think it, if that does happen, could it spread into other parts of Eastern Europe? I think a spread into other parts of Eastern Europe is unlikely because I really think that Russia does not want to touch NATO. It does not want to go down that route and start a war with NATO. And I think, you know, even though there is some scepticism, here and in Russia and even in parts of Europe about whether NATO would step in to defend parts of the Baltic states, for example, I think it would mean the end of NATO as a credible organization if it failed to do that, if it did not step up and defend even its smallest members. So I don't think a war with NATO is on the cards. 
at least as an initial stage, I think something could certainly happen on the ground in the separatist-controlled republics, and Russia's, Russian forces will come in openly as peacekeepers, as I mentioned. But again, we don't know. I mean, another thing that Ukrainians tell me here, it could be a long, drawn-out campaign against Ukraine. There could be cyber attacks. There will be propaganda. What could be the ultimate aim of this? You know, does Putin want to stir up uh, unrest within Ukraine? Does he want to stir up some kind of coup attempt against Zelensky? In some uh, department of the Russian intelligence services, do they imagine installing a pro-Russian leader at some point on the back of unrest in Ukraine? We don't know. All these things are open at the moment. But I would go back to the thing we talked about initially. Ukrainians are very calm. They say they're ready for whatever comes, and they are definitely ready to resist in, in any way they can, in lots of different ways. It absolutely remains to be seen what Putin will do, what he wants to do, and whether the Western deterrence, both in terms of threatened sanctions and the, the, the military buildup around Ukraine, the arms supplies going into Ukraine, whether that will be enough to make put Putin back down from whatever he may be planning now in the Kremlin. Dan, thanks so much for your time. That's all for today. My thanks to our guest, Dan McLaughlin. And you can read more of Dan's up-to-date coverage from Ukraine, where he's currently based, at irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.